All right, so we are on lesson four. Uh, on the table, there are handouts for lessons four, five, and six, because uh, I'm assuming we'll get through with six. Uh, how many guys are familiar with this guy named Billy Shakespeare? <laughs> how about Willie? Yes, Will I Am, yes. <laughs> well, he famously wrote, well, a lot of things, actually. Uh, one of the things he famously wrote was, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And uh, it's a most compelling statement when we consider uh, who the director of this, this grand play is, this great cosmic theater. Uh, it's a theater where God's glory is put on display, and he often chooses to, to put that glory on display through us. And that's what we're going to be looking at, that's what we're going to be seeing as we start looking at the book of Exodus tonight. Now, in the, the last couple lessons, uh, we, we looked at the beginning of this great theater, this great drama in the book of Genesis, the creation of the cosmos, mankind's ruinous for sin, God's great plan for the world to save us through Abraham's line. Uh, for the most part, though, that plan of redemption was unknown beyond this small group of people, this, this small group of Abraham's family. But in Exodus, uh, he's going to be turning on the house lights. Uh, and on his salvation. Uh, before it was a spotlight. Now we're going to turn on the house lights and really see everything around this for what it is. <coughs> Excuse me. Because in Exodus, we're going to see this being played on the world stage as he defeats the most powerful nation in the world at the time uh, and delivers his people for the purposes of his own glory. And so not only does the scope of this drama expand, uh, but in Exodus, he also introduces some themes and patterns that are going to be shaping the way uh, that we see him working throughout the rest of history. And so we're going to approach this in a couple of ways. Uh, one, and it is a, a historical narr narrative, so we're going to do a quick overview of the story uh, just to see the, the main points and how Exodus fits into uh, a redemptive history. And then we're going to take a step back and look at five main themes that come out of this uh, account in Exodus. We'll talk about what each one means in the context of Exodus, but we'll see how each theme becomes vital to the rest of the Bible as well. And uh, on your handout there, you should have an outline that you can see is kind of gui kind of guide us through what we're talking about and as we go along. So beginning in... Chapter 1, chapters 1 through 19, if you remember, uh, one of the crucial, crucial passages for us was back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where God first promises that he is going to send a redeemer uh, for all of mankind, and that he is going to do this through, uh, eventually through Abraham. No, but it's definitely somebody that's not part of our class. Thank you, Jonas, 
For those of you listening, a stranger just walked into the building, so. <laughs> um, so God had made a promise to Abraham and his descendants uh, that who would comprise a great nation, they would possess the land of Canaan, and that this the Savior who would crush the, the head of the serpent would come through that line. And at the start of Exodus, we see that they aren't a great nation and they don't possess any land. Uh, they're living as foreigners in Egypt and they settled there uh, with Joseph uh, during a great famine. And so in Exodus 1.1, Moses tells us that these are the names of the sons of Jacob. Uh, the brothers of Joseph who had gone on to Egypt. Uh, and uh, actually the Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is names, uh, which comes from this first verse where he is naming the names of the, of the sons of Jacob. Um, but there is uh, one aspect of the promise to Abraham that is being fulfilled, and that's the fact that uh, the, his descendants are becoming as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Exodus chapter 1. And there in verse 7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Uh, <coughs> And so we see where they haven't become a nation yet, they haven't inherited a land yet, but that first part of God's promise that they would become numerous, a multitude, we see that as already uh, coming to pass. Unfortunately, in response to this, the huge number of Hebrews and their strength in numbers, uh, Egypt subdues them, pushes them, forces them into slavery. Uh, and so they're no longer citizens, but slaves. And, you know, you know, for a lot of them, it was probably, they were probably thinking, did the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does he remember his promise that we would be a nation, that we would have our own land? And here we are, hundreds of years in slavery. So this is uh, the stage that opens up as we begin the book of Exodus, that they've been in slavery now for several hundred years. And in chapter 2, verse 24, um, they're crying out and to God to help them. In verse 24, it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and just so you know where it says God remembered his covenant, that doesn't mean that God forgot. Remembering and remembering something you forgot are not necessarily the same thing. Um, uh, an old-time greeting used to be, hey, remember remember me when you see your mom. In other words, that's, hey, keep it in the forefront of your mind that I want you to tell your mom hi for me. It didn't mean, please don't forget about me. It just meant, keep, keep me in the forefront of your mind uh, and tell your mom I said hi. Um, so to remember something doesn't mean I had forgotten it. To remember means keeping it in the forefront of your mind. So when it says God remembered his covenant... It doesn't mean that it, he forgot about it. It means that it was always in the forefront of his mind. So when God heard their groaning and the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was in the forefront of his mind. Uh, <clears throat> so they're groaning out. 
And God looks on them. He hears their groaning. And in chapter 2, Moses is born. And then chapter 3, Moses grew up real fast. And in chapter 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and reveals his plan. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, I have come down to deliver them, the Hebrews, of course, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the showdown begins. Uh, and keep in mind, this wasn't a battle uh, between Egypt and Israel. It wasn't a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. It was a battle between Pharaoh and God, the great I am. So just saying that, you already know who's going to win. I mean, you know, not much has to be said other than that. But starting in chapter 7... God starts sending his plagues upon the land. Uh, and after these first few plagues, God begins to distinguish uh, his judgment between Egypt and Israel. Uh, like the Egyptians received boils on their skin, but the Israelites received nothing. Um, so in other words, the plagues that were sent were sent as a judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, not on the Israelites. So none of these plagues, the, the boils, the hail, the locusts, darkness, none of those things affected the Israelites, only the Egyptians. And still amazingly, of course, Pharaoh refused to <clears throat> yield and release Israel. And then the 10th plague, uh, the Lord warns Moses that he's going to go through Egypt at midnight and kill every firstborn son. Not just every firstborn son of Egypt, every firstborn son. He plans to pour his wrath out on his enemies, but in his mercy, he also provides a way for his people to be spared. And uh, I think it's interesting that up to this point, Israel was just automatically spared. <clears throat> I mean, none of the plagues affected them until it came to death. Because the, a death resulting from God's judgment upon rebellion. And they weren't even going to be safe, safe from this. Unless, of course, they took the way that God gave them to escape. And that was through a sacrificial lamb. So I find that very interesting. That all the others, they were just automatically exempt from. But death, because of the judgment of God upon rebellion... They had to have a sacrificial lamb to save them from <clears throat> that uh, judgment of death. So <clears throat> in Exodus 12, thank you, Jonas. In Exodus 12, uh, 13, God says this, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And of course, that's where we get the term Passover. That's where the Israelites get the term Passover because God passed over the homes that were marked by the blood, the lamb that was slain. And in this ultimate blow, Pharaoh finally surrenders. Israel marches out of Egypt. Uh, and that's where we get the word, the, the, the name Exodus for this book. It means departure. <clears throat> but as we see, and as we'll see when we look at it more in depthly, uh, the Lord's not done with Egypt yet. In Exodus 14.4, we read, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So he leads the Israelites out of Egypt, pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He leads them to the Red Sea, which seemingly is a dead end, a, a trap. Uh, and the Egyptian army is closing in. Uh, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, you know, this is, it's getting tense here. Uh, as Yul Brynner is leading his, his host up to Charlton Heston and the Israelites. Uh, so I haven't seen the Christian Bell one. Is it worth watching? Has anybody seen it? Season one? Yeah, it was called, I think it was called Exodus. And Christian Bale was, was I think he was Moses. So, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, <coughs> uh, so we all know what happened. God put the fire between the Israelites and Egypt, part of the Red Sea. Uh, Israelites walked through on dry ground. Egyptians followed them. Sea comes crashing back. All the Egyptians drown. End of story, as far as them getting out of Egypt. Now that they have been rescued from slavery, uh, redeemed by the Lord, the question became, will they, would they continue to trust him? Because while they were now out of Egypt, out of slavery, their journey was just beginning. Uh, they still had to get to the promised land. Uh, and so in chapter 15, Moses is praising God for his judgment. But then almost... Immediately after that, <clears throat> the people start complaining there's no food or water. Uh, so it's amazing that even when they're being grumbling and complaining and disobedient, they're not, not worthy of God's favor. <clears throat> he says this to them, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. <clears throat> and this is about the time that God descends on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes on up. And we'll see all of that in the next lesson. Uh, but that's where this, this first part they're going to look at ends. And it really is an amazing part of the, re, the redemptive history that we're looking at throughout the Old Testament. There's oppression, there's judgment, there's miraculous deliverance. Um, the promises made to Abraham are all one step closer to being fulfilled. Uh, but you may have noticed that throughout this narrative, God is speaking. It's not just a cool story that makes for a great movie with Charlton Heston or Christian Bale or whoever. Uh, this is God speaking. It, it's more than just a story. This is God speaking. Uh, and he speaks to Moses and Aaron. And through them, he spoke to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And through his words, God is revealing the meaning of the great events that he's accomplishing on this grand stage, this global stage now in dealing with Egypt. Uh, and Exodus really is a foundational book for understanding the rest of the Bible, um, the, the rest of redemptive history, really. That's why when we got finished with going through Hebrews, we went to Exodus, uh, because Exodus and Hebrews are, they're like sister books. They're like, yeah, they're sister books. Uh, 
where a lot of the stuff that we see in Hebrews and then in Leviticus, uh, we see <clears throat> in Hebrews how all of that, how all of Exodus and Leviticus were pointing to who Christ was. And so Exodus really is one of the foundational books for having a deeper understanding of the rest of the Bible, the rest of redemptive history, uh, the work of Christ when he was here on earth. And that's what we're going to look at. Uh, we, we got that basic overview. Bless you, bless you. Uh, and now we want to take a look at five themes that we see uh, here in Exodus in these, these first 19 chapters. And if you got your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. And verses 13 and 14 say this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is God's unique identity <clears throat> and saying and uh, naming himself the, the great I am. I am who I am. He is saying simply he exists and his existence is absolute. I am. I exist. My existence is absolute. He, he didn't derive his existence from anyone or anything else. Uh, he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's eternal. He simply and absolutely is. Uh, and as the I am, God is revealing himself uh, as the free and sovereign ruler over everything. Not just Israel, not just Egypt, not just the world, but over everything, over the universe. And that's why he's going to prevail against Egypt in this, this great battle. Uh, not because he and Pharaoh are, are equally matched, but he eked out the victory. It wasn't even really a battle. He is the great I am. And so from this point on, uh, Moses is going to refer to God most often, not as God, but by the Lord, uh, which will be all caps in your Bible. Uh, or as we know, if it's in all caps, it's Yahweh. He'll be referring to him as Yahweh. Uh, it's known as the Tetragrammaton, which also makes me think of Christian Bale. He was in a movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. He and, no, it was a movie where he and Sean Bean were, you know, uh, Boromir, uh, where they, e with the gun cotta, yes. Equilibrium? Yeah. And, oh yeah, it was, and the, the government there was called the Tetragrammaton. And Yahweh, the YWHW, is called the Tetragrammaton. Seth, you had a question? Y-W-H-W. Oh, okay. Uh, YWHW. YHWH. Sorry, thank you. Thank you. I was testing you. Yeah. you. You passed. You passed. Good job, Chuck. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, uh, Yahweh, which literally means. I am. And it's interesting. This is up against Egypt's countless deities. And all he says against these deities is, yeah, you got 
Isis and Osiris and Horus and yada yada. And I am. He doesn't give a lot of pre pretentiousness. He simply says, I am. I, I, I love that simplicity there. Uh, so the verse that sums up the conflict between God and Pharaoh is chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Oh boy, is he going to find out. Uh, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And so the rest of Exodus is basically an answer to Pharaoh's question. And just a few of the attributes... I forgot to save all my notes before I transferred them from my computer to here. All right. Well, what's that? There we go. Feel, oh, feel the spirit. (coughs) So, uh, (coughs) excuse me. So just a few of the attributes uh, of the I am that we see in Exodus. Uh, The Lord is a covenant keeping God. In Exodus 6, 5, it says, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. That is, you know, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to preserve that line that through the seed of of the woman, a Messiah would come. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is utterly supreme. In chapter 8, verse 10, says, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. He is utterly supreme. He's uniquely divine. He's uniquely sovereign. And he should be our hope, just as he was Israel, Israel's, because he is still uniquely sovereign and uniquely divine, just as he always has been. Uh, we learned that he is the great warrior. Uh, this is what... Moses was singing after God drowns the Egyptian army in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3. The Lord, and that's all caps, Yahweh, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Uh, We see in that that he is a caring provider, as much as Israel wanted to grumble against him, grumble and complain. In Exodus 16, uh, we read this. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, you ungrateful little spoiled brats. It's not what he says. He says, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Uh, Which is amazing to me. They didn't just say, say to them, you ungrateful little spoiled brats. I just delivered you from 400 years of slavery. And now you're going to grumble and complain against me. But that's not who God is. That's that's who I am. Uh, There is a point where he does that. Yep. Uh, And there's a lot more that could be said about his unique identity with the great I am. Uh, But most significant to note is that centuries later, man, I had so many notes here. 
Centuries later, uh, when confronted by the Pharisees and his Jewish opponents, Jesus boldly declared in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And I don't think Jesus was just bad at grammar. I don't think he meant to say before Abraham was, I was, or I have been, or he knew what he, he said what he meant and meant what he said. Before Abraham was born, I am. And the next verse says that the Jews immediately picked up stones to stone him because they knew what Jesus meant. They knew that he wasn't just bad at grammar as well. When he said before Abraham was, I am they picked up the, stone, the stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. He was claiming divinity for himself by declaring himself as the I am. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they changed it in their Bible to where he says, before Abraham was, I have been, um, or I was. Uh, and they, there are some other places in Scripture where even normal Bible translations translate that Greek phrase to I, I was or I have been. But the reason it's obvious that this particular moment, it should be I am, is if Jesus simply meant before Abraham was, I was, well, at worst, he's just crazy to think that he's been living since before Abraham. And they didn't stone people for being crazy. They did stone people for claiming to be God. Uh, so the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, the Jews had finally just had enough, and they snapped, and they wanted to kill him. That, that's what, how they explained this away to keep their own translation. But it's very obvious from the words Jesus uses and the response of the Jews that he meant before Abraham was, I am. So in a very real sense, Jesus is who we're reading about here in Exodus when you were reading about I am performing great miracles to redeem his people. Because remember, for all eternity, God has always been three persons in one God, perfectly unified in their thoughts, words, and deeds. Uh, so as we go through uh, the Old Testament, understand we are seeing Christ at work in all of this as well. Uh, and in our own times, uh, trouble, persecution, uh, it's kind of cool that we can look back on all these things of the I am, that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he's utterly supreme, that he is a great warrior on behalf of his people, that he is a caring provider, uh, that he is our great savior, uh, things that as we're going through our own troubles, uh, maybe you know somebody going through issues, sufferings. These are great things that you can focus your prayers on. Uh, God being the warrior who fights on behalf of his people. God being a caring provider. God being uh, utterly supreme, utterly sovereign. Uh, so you should use these descriptions of God's character to inform your prayers for yourself and for those that you know. Now, we also see, uh, as one of these themes, a, the pattern of redemption. So not only do we see something of God's unique identity in Exodus, but we're also seeing something in the way that he works, uh, specifically the way he establishes the pattern of redemption that's going to prepare us for what he's going to do later with, through Christ. And so there are three aspects of this pattern that we see 
uh, in Exodus. Uh, the first is the problem. The people are oppressed in slavery. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7 of Exodus says, Then the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Uh, so the Exodus is the salvation of God's people out of something. In this case, tyrannical captivity. So there's the problem. The people are oppressed in slavery, and God's redemption, his salvation, is saving his people out of something. So we've got the problem. And then we have the solution. Uh, God single-handedly acts to save the people. Now some say, well, Moses had a pretty big part in it. Question, what could Moses have done if God had not been doing it through him? <laughs> well, you know, since you put it that way, <laughs> uh, <coughs> he got to throw in some batarangs and uh, got the black sword. Yes. Yes. So. Uh, <laughs> hilarious now I'm going to have to watch the movie to see just <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so the the solution is that God acts he single handedly acts to save his people sparing them through from his judgment through a blood sacrifice the, the, God's solution is to single-handedly deliver his people, but sparing him from his judgment through a blood sacrifice. So at chapter 6, verse 6 tells us, uh, he's talking to Moses, and he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, notice in that passage, I will, I will, I will. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. This is all God. Uh, this is him using Moses, but it is all God doing it. Uh, without God doing it, Moses could have done zilch. Uh, so this concept of redemption refers to purchasing freedom for a slave. And we actually see that later on in Leviticus as part of the law, um, this, this idea of redeeming a slave from his slavery. Uh, and God pours his judgment out on Egypt, but through that Passover lamb, a ransom was paid, and the people go free. So the problem, people are oppressed in slavery. Solution, God single-handedly delivers them, sparing them from his judgment through a blood sacrifice. And the result, he leads his people to the promised land where they can worship him and be in fellowship with him. So we see this in chapter 3, verse 8, which we read earlier. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So 
again and again the purpose that the Lord instructs Moses to give Pharaoh for desiring to leave Egypt is so that the people can worship God. Uh, it's never simply about them coming out of slavery. It's so that they can worship him. So Israel is rescued out of slavery with the intent of taking them into something else, into the land so they can worship as God's people. Uh, as we talked about Tuesday, God's people and God's place under God's rule. It was about worship. Mere liberation from slavery was not the point of the deliverance. It was simply a means to an end. They had to be delivered so that they could go worship. So the point is to create a people who know and worship him. And this is, pro this, this is a critical point. Uh, if we only think of Exodus as a release from physical slavery, uh, then we're going to read into later references of it in Scripture with a wrong worldly interpretation. Uh, this is what we see, whether it's that cartoon, Prince of Egypt, um, or even the Ten Commandments, or possibly Exodus. The, the whole point of all those movies is God delivering his people out of slavery. They miss the fact that that is simply a means to an end. The point was worship. Not just God delivering his people from slavery. Uh, when we see the ultimate goal of Exodus as worship and relationship, then we have a much more balanced view of how scripture uses all of this imagery later on as we look at who Christ is. So these three aspects of God's redemption, uh, the problem of slavery, the solution of salvation through judgment, and the result of restored worship, they're going to be the major recurring themes throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, in Psalm 130, we read, O Israel, hope in the Lord, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So here, the problem wasn't a foreign captor, it was the people's own sins. Uh, the solution was that God himself would redeem, and the result is that Israel puts their hope in the Lord. That, that whole, again, that thing of problem, solution, result. Uh, and we see that through, throughout uh, the rest of Scripture. I had several of my own notes here, and I don't remember what they were, so we'll just keep on going. That's probably best. So uh, the return from exile is portrayed as a new and greater exodus. Uh, you know, they, we talked um, in Tuesday night about how repeatedly they were thrown into exile, uh, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, and them returning from exile is portrayed as a new and greater exodus. In Jeremiah 23, we read, the people who no longer set will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. So again, we see this idea of redemption and, and exodus uh, later on. And of course, ultimately, the greatest expression of that uh, is seen in the ministry of Christ. Uh, in Titus 2.14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, the solution, from all wickedness, the problem, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, the result. 
So again, problem, solution, result. Then the next thing we see is God's gracious provision uh, of a substitutionary sacrifice. Any questions before we continue on? Any thoughts? Any comments? Any deep, profound, philosophical uh, statements? All right. Then let's continue talking about God's gracious provision of a substitutionary sacrifice. So in Exodus 12... It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I find that interesting. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Uh, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he intends to strike down every firstborn. And again, as we kind of talked about before, in most of the earlier plagues, Israel was always spared uh, what Egypt was suffering. But again, in this one, death as a result of God's judgment would affect every firstborn, whether Hebrew, whether Egyptian, whether animal. Uh, and so Israel isn't God's people because they're perfect. They too deserve a punishment, the punishment of death for their sins. They are under this same death curse of sin that even the Egyptians are about to fall under. Um, and he could have killed the firstborn of all Israel and no one could question his goodness or justice. They were just as sinful as the Egyptians. Therefore, God, it would have been just as just to kill all the firstborn of the Israelites. But he provided a lamb that they could uh, sacrifice so that it would die in their place so that they would not perish. And so it's not that punishment is given to, to Egypt, but not Israel. Rather, Israel's punishment falls on a substitute. And notice God chose who is going to get this. He didn't say to all the people in that land, do this. He said only to his chosen people, you have a way out. God chose who that substitute would be for. And so this Passover is a monument of God's grace. The Israelites didn't deserve this substitute, but God gave it to them. And before the Passover even happens, God gives them instructions for how they're to remember the Passover every year. Uh, the Lord wants the celebration of the Passover basically to define his redeemed people throughout their future. He commands them to start a new calendar year based on this Passover feast. Uh, and this is because he wants to point his people to the Passover lamb. That is the whole focus of the Jewish calendar, the Passover lamb. Uh, that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus, what did he say the first time he saw Jesus coming? Behold the lamb mm -hmm. comes to take away the sins of the Yep. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Woohoo! Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Uh, and so just as when God gave instructions for the Passover lamb, he told them that none of the lamb's bones were to be broken. And so John, in the Gospel of John, John 19, he makes a point of, of telling us that when they broke the legs of the two thieves uh, so that they would go ahead and finish suffocating, they didn't break Jesus's legs. None of his bones would be broken uh, as the, the Passover lamb. Uh, and so what's essential for us to see is that the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, causes the New Testament writers, of course, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, to look back at Exodus and interpret the Passover in spiritual terms. I'm very against spiritualizing scripture, but God has every right to. So it's okay if God spiritualizes it because then we know it's right. We know it's true. So uh, this Exodus, this Passover lamb, it prefigures uh, our liberation from sin and death that would be accomplished through Christ. And this emphasis on spiritual liberation, I just started to say liberalization. No. Yeah, wait a minute. Uh, spiritual liberation, it becomes vital when we consider the ways in which we're called to apply Exodus to our lives as Christians. Uh, and, you know, especially with our culture today, uh, pe many people who study Exodus conclude the best way for us to apply the book of Exodus is to lend our efforts to social justice, fighting slavery and oppression on earth, whether it's human trafficking, uh, systemic injustice, racism, genocide. Now, are those things that we should oppose? Absolutely. All of those are th good things for Christians to oppose. We should be opposing those things. Um, all people are created in the image of God and deserve the dignity, love, and respect uh, that that inherently brings with it. But to treat those things as the primary application of Exodus misses the point entirely. Remember, the point of God bringing his people out wasn't simply to bring them out from under oppression. It was to bring them to a point where they, a place where they could worship. That was the point. Uh, so that's, uh, when we make it simply free from oppression, then that's what we get today with social justice warriors. Um, but according to New Testament, the main thing Exodus teaches us is the most desperate need of all people is spiritual liberation. And that comes through repentance and faith in Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. And that's why God set up the Passover celebrations as his people's primary memory. Uh, it would be um, so that every single year, at the beginning of the year, they understood this is about God giving us a land, bringing us to a place to worship. Uh, and that's why the New Testament references the book of Exodus focusing on Passover and not necessarily the Exodus. Notice in most of the New Testament passages that refer back to Exodus, they're not referring back really much to, oh, freeing the oppressed. No, it's always referring back to the Passover lamb. That's the point of it all. Uh, and again, that's not to say we should be indifferent to earthly, earthly suffering, but rather we should be very concerned about suffering, especially eternal 
suffering. And then we also see another theme, and that is God's special people. Uh, throughout the whole Exodus account, it becomes clear that Yahweh's purpose in rescuing uh, Abraham's descendants from Egypt, again, isn't just to save them from terrible circumstances. It's to establish them as a nation that belongs to him and represents him in the world as they worship him. In Exodus 19, God tells Israel that, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying, all people belong to me. I am the sovereign king over everything. He says, but you, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart. You are a people that I have set apart just for myself. Uh, and most striking verse that shows this is uh, Hebrews 4, 22 through 23, where God is instructing Moses. He says, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Uh, and so it's interesting that God here doesn't just say, Israel is, they're my people. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. And so uh, Israel is, is first in God's affections, the firstborn son. And so as God's covenant people, they receive a, a special blessing, but they also have a special mission to display his glory to the rest of the nations and so make him known throughout all generations. Again, let my son go so he may worship me. Uh, but before we even get out of Exodus, we see they didn't do so great as God's son. Uh, a few episodes in the history, at the end of Exodus, the son of God, Israel, miraculously passes through the waters of the Red Sea in chapter 14. And then in 16, they begin to march through the desert. And in chapter 16, that's where they start to grumble against God because they don't have food to eat. Then in 17, they put God to the test when they quarrel about not having water to drink. And then in Exodus 32 that we're going to look at more in depth in the next lesson, while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, the people are worshiping a golden calf and calling it their God. So, you know, here he is telling Pharaoh, let my son go so they can worship me. And then before they even get close to the promised land, they're all already worshiping some false god. We can say that the behavior is pretty typical experience of the Son of God, Israel, in the Old Testament. Uh, but in a technical sense, you know, the other night we we're talking about typology or foreshadowing, uh, in the sense that um, Israel was a type or a foreshadow of a better Son of God that was to come. Uh, and it's failure foreshadowing its fulfillment. You know, Israel, my firstborn son, let my son go. And they failed miserably as a foreshadow. Hey, there will come a son of God that won't fail miserably. Uh, if you read through Matthew 3 through 4, which you ought to do this week, uh, compare Jesus to Israel. So in his baptism, Jesus passes through waters and is called God's beloved son. Then he goes off into the desert, into the wilderness where he's tempted. 
Uh, he's tempted about not having enough food to eat. His second temptation is to test God. His final temptation is to worship someone other than God. We see, we see these mirrors, this foreshadowing of what Israel went through and what Christ went through, yet a very different result when Christ went through it. So Jesus succeeded in all the ways that Israel, as the Son of God, uh, that Israel failed. He succeeded in all the ways Israel failed. And so his success, his obedience, identifies him as the true, one and only, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, and in Matthew 2.15, it actually makes his connection even more explicit, his description when... Uh, the angel tells Joseph, take the mother and the child and flee to Egypt. And it says, so that what God said, I have called my son out of Egypt. Now, originally he was talking about back in Exodus, that was Israel. And now here we're saying, oh yeah, this is also Jesus calling my son out of Egypt. That this isn't just some, some preacher trying to make a sermonizing spiritualized point. This is God saying, this was all a foreshadow of the true son that I would call out of Egypt. Uh, it's, it's really, it's just amazing when you think about it. it. It really is just amazing how God orchestrates all of this. We have an amazing God. And then we have, getting ready to close here on this lesson, God's glorious motive. Uh, what is it that ties all these things together? It's God's motive. Uh, and again, as we've kind of hammered on, most secular retellings of the story completely miss this point. Uh, they focus on the tragedy of slavery or they focus on the heroism of, of Moses, but they miss the most common refrain throughout all of Exodus. And that is, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This, this refrain, you will know that I am the Lord. It occurs uh, at least 14 times just in these 19 chapters. You will know that I am Yahweh. That is his glorious motive, that they will know him. Not just you won't be slaves anymore. You will know me. So God's purpose is to establish his fame, to exalt his glory. Uh, in Exodus 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God's glory uh, is the per that was God's glory that was the purpose behind the plagues. His glory is the purpose of the judgment uh, of Egypt at the Red Sea. Uh, Exodus 14, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. His glory is the reason why he himself sovereignly hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would resist him. Uh, Exodus 7, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So God is the one who orchestrates Pharaoh's refusal to God. Uh, and God does it specifically so that he will receive maximum glory. Now, it doesn't mean that Pharaoh is not responsible for his actions. Um, he is personally guilty. He is deserving of judgment. Romans 9 kind of, well, let's read Romans 9. Um, if you got your Bibles with you. Uh, beginning in 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he answers the question of who can find fault with God, right? No, actually he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? It's interesting that the question, okay, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then why was Pharaoh still guilty? And God says, who are you to question me? In other words, he doesn't give us an answer. We simply know that both things are true. In his sovereignty, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Yet, Pharaoh was still responsible for his decisions. Yep. For those of you listening, I just shrugged my shoulders because I don't know the answer to that question. Of, uh, <laughs> uh, and nobody does. All we know is that scripture plainly teaches both. God is sovereign over the affairs of man, over the heart of man, yet man is still responsible and accountable for his own decisions. So uh, Pharaoh stands as a humbling example that God does all that he does, even hardening sinners' hearts for his own glory. So his self-glorification is the ultimate summary for what we've, what we've seen in this first half of Exodus. Um, why did God choose to have his people in Egypt that he had to deliver them from? Because Egypt was the greatest power in the world. There was no one who could stand against the nation of Egypt. Uh, and because that's why, and so Egypt uh, provided the perfect stage for God to display His glory, to display His power. And now He's gone on a public com campaign campaign for His glory, and He raised Himself up on this huge global stage, and He has prevailed. And we know that what He did in Egypt was spoken of throughout the region, because Moses even brings that up later that all these other nations know what God did. I mean, this was Egypt, and there was no social media, yet still, all these surrounding nations and peoples knew 
what God had done in Egypt uh, in redeeming his people. Uh, he had revealed his unique identity. He had established a pattern of redemption. He's provided a substitutionary sacrifice. He called out his special people and all of it was for his glory. Uh, and so application here I think is obvious. We were created to bring glory to God. Everything he did was for the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards said it, said it this way. All that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in the one phrase, the glory of God. So, all right. Any thoughts or questions uh, as we end this lesson? All right. Then let's take a four-minute break. Yes. The, the, the whole point of lesson four was that Pharaoh did it his way, but Moses did it Yahweh. <laughs> 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 oh, nice. <laughs> he was waiting for just the right moment for that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, well, it looks like I. I did save my notes for lesson. No, I didn't. All right. So, all right. Lesson five. Lesson five. We are still in the mid-15th century B.C. Uh, this is Exodus 20 through 40. And Yahweh. Now I cannot say that without thinking that. <laughs> Uh, Yahweh has just rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he did it through great signs and wonders, judged Egypt in the process, uh, and through it all. Uh, <laughs> uh, and through it all, uh, magnified his name in all the earth. I did it, yeah, yes. <laughs> through it all, yes. That is perfect. Uh, you know, Frank Sinatra singing a song I did it my way. I was sure if some of uh, might miss that, yeah. I apologize to those listening on this. Uh, so uh, now they are heading on toward the promised land. And on the way, they come to a place called Mount Sinai, uh, where they're to worship Yahweh before they go any further. So in the scope of God's uh, plan to re redeem for himself uh, a people out of the nations of the world and return the world to its original state, we're at a high point. Uh, as soon as the first sin was committed, God had promised to send a savior, you know, back with Adam and Eve. Then he promised one man, Abraham, that the promised savior would be one of his descendants. And it's in this part of the story that we see his, Abraham's descendants finally starting to become a real nation. Um, they're about to get laws and a national religion. Uh, and so we start to see this recreation of humanity slowly creeping forward and he's beginning to dwell with them and have fellowship with his people again. So a, a thematic sentence for 
the second half of Exodus might sound like this. Yahweh is establishing the terms of the covenant with his people to show them how to live in fellowship with him. Uh, he's establishing the terms of the covenant with his people to show them how to live in fellowship with him. <laughs> no, as soon as I read it, I... <coughs> so, uh, in this part of God's word, we're going to see the, the covenant laws that Israel was to live by. Uh, and, and if you have ever wondered, why in the world did God make, why did they, the priest, have to have this tassel with one blue thread? We're going to be finding all of that out, uh, if you've ever wondered that. I have wondered that before. Why a tassel with one blue thread? So uh, we're going to be finding all that out. We're going to see the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, and in it, we're going to see how well the people kept the terms of the covenant. I think we already know how well, but we're going to really look at how well they kept it and his response to the covenant breakers. Uh, and in these chapters, he's going to give the terms of the covenant to his people. And so uh, in chapters 20 through 23, we have the Ten Commandments. Uh, you may have heard it referred to as the Decalogue, uh, but we have the Ten Commandments along with uh, additional commandments and regulations regarding society, morality, religious calendar of the people. Uh, and then chapters 24 through 40 are written using a chiastic pattern. How many guys remember chiasms and chiastic patterns? All right. Uh, if you don't remember it, um, it's a literary device. Uh, and it's a type of structure and it's found commonly in texts from the ancient world in which important concepts or ideas are placed in a symmetrical order for emphasis. Um, they walk you through an order and then walk you through that order a second time, but in reverse. So that's, that's a chiasm. So the chiasm in chapters 24 <coughs> through 40 uh, are especially noteworthy because it represents right here at the outset of the Old Testament a picture of the gospel. Uh, again, we, we don't think of the Old Testament as gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, but it really, really is. So in chapter 24 and then chapter 40, the two ends, look at it as an A, B, C, C, B, A. So A and A. Uh, the writer lays out the ultimate goal of the covenant, namely fellowship with God. Then B and B, both sections lay out, uh, this is uh, chapters 25 and chapters 31, they lay out what God requires uh, in order for his people to have fellowship with him. And then C and C, Exodus 32 and 34, uh, we see the people are unable to keep those requirements. And so Moses has to intercede in order for the covenant to be renewed. So sin, intercession, God's glory and grace. Uh, it's the, that is the centerpiece of the gospel. Uh, and that is what we see here as the, the, as the turning point in the second half of Act, Exodus. So um, as we go through the second half of Exodus, we're going to talk about each part of this chiasm in more detail. So Exodus 20 through 23, covenant obligations. Uh, I'm going to read through a, a large chunk here, Exodus 21 through 21. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. 
And beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be, may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. All right. Um, Remember that uh, God's promises to Abraham uh, are being fulfilled here. Uh, and again, those promises were pure, 100% vintage grace, free gift. Um, this is where Israel starts taking shape as an actual nation. Again, they're, they're receiving a moral code. They're receiving law, a national religion. So why does God give these commands known as the Mosaic Covenant? We had the Abrahamic Covenant, um, and now this is called the Mosaic Covenant. Um, if you obey these commands, you shall be my people. Why is he giving these commands to his people when the covenant was already made with Abraham purely by grace? Well, God had made man in his image. And to, that was to image forth God to the world as a sort of priest king by exercising dominion over creation on God's behalf. But when, they, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they ceased to image God faithfully. But in his mercy, God didn't banish them forever. He was intent on accomplishing his purpose in creation. So he promised that he would send a Messiah, a Redeemer, and he makes this promise to Abraham. I will bless you, your descendants, and all the nations of the earth through you. But there was still a problem with sin and rebellion. 
So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they all received God's promise, but they, they still weren't imaging and displaying God like they were supposed to. Uh, God's promise of redemption was in place, but there was still a problem of sin. That brings us up to the Mosaic Covenant. So why was this added to God's covenant with Abraham? Reason one, Exodus 19, God says that he wants to have a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Uh, but verse five says that they will only fulfill this purpose and be these people if they obey him and fully keep his covenant. Uh, he seems to be saying, if you keep my word, if you keep my commandments, then you will rightly image me once more. And I'm giving you the law as a blueprint for what this looks like. And if you live according to this blueprint, you will be my kings, exercising dominion. You will be my priests, mediating my character to the world. Uh, so in other words, the first purpose of the law is that it revealed who God is. It revealed who God is. Uh, so the people needed direction about how to display the glory of the creator, Yahweh. They needed this to know how to display his glory. They needed the law. But the law gets broken. So what does this do to the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham? And Paul actually answers that for us in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3, 17 and 18, Paul writes this. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise to Abraham, uh, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Uh, so the first thing we see here is that the giving of the law did not nullify, it didn't wipe out uh, the promise to Abraham. Even if they break their end of the covenant, Yahweh still upholds his. Even if the people break the Mosaic covenant, God will keep his end of the covenant. He made the promise first before the law ever existed before the law ever existed, and he's intent on fulfilling this covenant, this plan of redemption through the seed of the woman, through the Savior, who is to come through Abraham's line. Uh, as Paul keeps on talking Galatian, he says, why then the law? So people have been asking this question for a long time. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so the phrase when he says, because of transgressions, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Uh, it could mean several things. Uh, at the very least, though, uh, it means that because of sin, the law was needed. Uh, the law pointed out sin in the people. It reminded them of their need for the promised seed who was to come their need for someone to rescue them from their sin. Uh, so very clearly we see here in Genesis and Exodus, first you have the promise, then you have the law. So the promise was not based upon the law. God's promise stands on its own apart from the law. 
So why was the law added? Again, as we saw in Exodus, to fulfill God's purpose of revealing his character. And secondly, it was added because of transgression, uh, that th- because through the law we become conscious of our need for a Savior. Uh, any questions on that? All right. Uh, and then as we get to the New Testament, uh, we discover a third purpose of the law, and that is that it is a tool for our sanctification as Christians. Um, now, it's, to be clear, Israelites were not saved because they kept the law. Uh, Exodus 20 tells us that the Israelites were already saved out of their bondage before they were given the law. God didn't give them the law and then saw how well they kept the law and then delivered them. God delivered them before there was any law. Their deliverance was not based upon their keeping the law. Their deliverance was based upon God being faithful to his promise. No one has ever been saved by keeping any kind of law. Uh, Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And so for us, the application is that um, we should not use the law as a means to establish our own righteousness uh, as though God's going to approve of us if we keep it well enough. Rather, we should use the law to remind us of our own sinfulness, which should then drive us to Christ. So it is not to establish our own righteousness, but to image, more, image God more accurately to the world as we are driven to Christ as we're confronted with our own sin. Then uh, next part of that chiasm, uh, Exodus 32 and 30 through 34, covenant disobedience and covenant grace. Uh, so looking where God introduces the law, we're going to start from the center and work our way out with this chiasm. And how did the people do in keeping this covenant? Uh, turn to chapter 32 of Exodus there. So Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And here's what was going on at the bottom of the mountain. In verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So immediately there go commandments 1 and 2. And we'll see in the following verses um, that Aaron made these gods and that the people worshipped them. Now, how does Yahweh respond to this this disloyalty? Verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Sounds like a, a mom talking to her husband when the kids are misbehaving. Your kids, you know, that's, that's what God is saying. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them 
and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And again, he doesn't call them my people anymore. He says to Moses, they're your people. And he's ready to blot them out. But then in verse 11, uh, Moses is a type of Christ here. It says, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? See, Moses even knows that he... He, he was powerless. He couldn't have done what he did. It was God who did it. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses here, he's interceding on behalf of the people of Israel so that God will have mercy on them. And, uh, you know, in verse 12, Moses isn't appealing to any fairness or merit or goodness on part of the people. Uh, he's appealing to God's glory. Uh, Moses says, Yahweh, don't let the Egyptians make a mockery of your name. Uh, don't let them say Yahweh is evil toward his people. Uh, in verse 13, he appeals to Yahweh's faithfulness and trustworthiness. He says, remember the promises you made to your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Keep your promises. Do it for your name's sake. Uh, and in verse 14, it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Any questions on any of that? It just makes me wonder what if uh, one of Moses would have said, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm tired of him. I'm tired of him too. Uh, better, uh, man, better man than me. <laughs> yep. Especially, I mean, God said, hey, I'm going to destroy him. I'm going to make, I'm going to bring this line through you, Moses. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to stand here and watch, Lord. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but God is gracious. His plan for redemption moves forward. Um, but here in chapter 33, uh, we learn that to Moses, the covenant is not just a lot of rules to be kept in exchange for some, ble some blessings. Rather, Moses was concerned that he and the people of Israel have a relationship with God. Um, that, again, the covenant is not an end of itself. Uh, it's the means to a greater end, and that is knowing and enjoying God. Uh, in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter, Moses says he doesn't want to travel any further unless Yahweh goes with them. You know, if the whole point was being brought out of slavery, it's done. Hey, God, thanks. We'll see you later. But Moses says, no, I, I'm not going anywhere without you, God. It wasn't just about not being slaves anymore. It was about knowing and being with God. Um, so Israel being special and distinct from other nations doesn't mean much uh, unless that distinction brings with it the presence of Yahweh. To know, love, and enjoy the fellowship of God is Moses' ultimate agenda. And if that's not the agenda 
of, of each of us in this room, if that's not the agenda of the church, then we're wasting our time. Uh, it means that church, Bible studies, school of ministry, community groups, the gospel, they're not just religious artifacts to, to bring us social acceptance or make us feel pious or righteous or holy, uh, to take away worldly stress, to have good fellowship. Um, they're instruments to bring us to know, love, and enjoy God. And if we miss that point, we're missing the point for everything that we're doing in the Christian life. Um, <clears throat> so there in chapter 33 and verse 18, uh, Moses says, you know what? If you're not going, I don't want to go. And hey, Lord, he says in verse 18, please show me your glory. Uh, and in God's glory in this context is that the manifestation of all of his perfections and beauty, his majesty. Um, and Moses wants to see it, but we are all familiar with what God said to Moses, basically saying, Moses, you can't. You can't see the full display of my glory, the full <clears throat> display of my holiness. Uh, you can't see it because you are a sinner and it would destroy you. So Yahweh had a solution. Um, he granted part of Moses' request. He put him in a cleft of the rock uh, and let him see uh, his back as he passed by. And so Moses said, let me see you. And God said, it'll kill you, but I'm going to make a way. Um, and God made a way for us through Christ as well to uh, bring us to himself while still protecting us from his wrath, from his holiness. Um, without Christ, it is the same for us. Without Christ, we would be destroyed by being in the presence of God. Yet in Christ, we, as we have seen in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, we can with confidence approach the throne of grace. So uh, Exodus 25, 31, and 35 and 40. Uh, instruction, the other parts of this chiasm. Uh, instructions for and construction of a covenant meeting place. In other words, the tabernacle. So uh, the tabernacle was a big tent uh, and he instructed his people how to build it. Uh, and this is where he would dwell with them, even though they were, they were sinful. Uh, and so that was the purpose of the tabernacle. Tabernacle. There we go. I was reading chapters and trying to say tabernacle. So the, the next chapter will be about the tabernacle. So chapters 25 through 28, uh, God delivers detailed instructions regarding the building of this tabernacle, um, from how to build it, to how to fund it, to how the priests are to, <laughs> how the priests are to be dressed. I tried to say priest <laughs> and dressed and <laughs> yeah, pressed, how the priests are to be priest dressed. Yeah. How the priests are to be dressed and how are they supposed to go about their work inside of it? And then we get to uh, chapter 29. And it's in chapter 29 that he lays out 
how the priests are to be consecrated, how they're to be set apart for service to him uh, and their, their function and purpose in the tabernacle. So how can a sinful people dwell in the presence of God? There are seven things uh, in, this, in this passage. In verse 38 of chapter 29, <clears throat> this is what you were to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Uh, and this is regularly each day. And this offering was to make atonement for sins. Uh, verse 36 and other places in the Old Testament make it clear that the sacrifices uh, are for the atonement of sins. And notice that they have to be carried out every single day. Every single day. Verse 42 says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So <clears throat> these offer, offerings had to be made at the entrance of the tabernacle. Uh, it tells us that before they could get in, it was only through sacrifice that they were able to enter into where the presence of God was. It was only through sacrifice that there was atonement, forgiveness for their sins, that anyone was able to meet with God. Uh, in verse 42, it also says, this is where I'll meet with you to speak to you there. So it's also here where Moses receives a revelation from God. Then verse 33, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Notice when he's talking to Moses, he says, there I will meet with you to speak to you. But when he talks about Israel, he only says, there I will meet with the people. He doesn't say, I will speak to you. It's always to and through Moses. He says, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Uh, it, it tells us the tabernacle is holy because of the presence of God's glory, that it is his glory that sets it apart. In verse 45, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Continuing on, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Again, dwelling among them. The goal isn't just to not be slaves. It is to be in the presence of God, to know him. So these seven things that describe the tabernacle uh, and make it possible for God to dwell with his people, uh, do they sound familiar to us? Hebrews 9.26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, just as the sacrifice took place before they could even get through, Jesus put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is through this atonement for sins found only in Jesus that anyone can come to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, you know, this is where the tabernacle was, got, was where God met with Moses to speak to Moses. In Hebrews 1, 2, it says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. He spoke to Israel through Moses, and now God speaks to us through his Son. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. He is the one through whom we learn the most about who God is. Uh, God meets and reconciles with his people in Christ. So he speaks to us through Christ and he reconciles with us in Christ. 
Romans 5.11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And just as God's, the manifestation of his glory was there in the, at the tabernacle, John 1 and 14 tells us, the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus is God in a physical body, dwelling with his people, just as the as we'll see there was a physical manifestation of the glory of God as he dwelled with his people. Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He was God in a physical body dwelling with his people. And only through Jesus, you know, God said that as, as uh, he dwelled with them in the tabernacle, they would know that he is God. They would be his people. And John 14, 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, that only through Jesus does anyone know God. So again, as we have seen through, through so many things, the tabernacle again is a beautiful picture, a beautiful foreshadow of what we would have in and through Christ. He is the more glorious tabernacle, just as he is the better Moses. He is the better David. Uh, he is the better Adam. He's the better everything. Um, but now, again, because just because Jesus is the better, the more glorious tabernacle, it doesn't mean that there were any, that the tabernacle wasn't wonderful as well. I mean, any place where God dwells is a wonderful place. Um, and that's what makes Jesus so incredible. I mean, if, if the tabernacle was a refrigerator box in an alley in Los Angeles, then to say Jesus is better than that isn't much. But the fact that the tabernacle really was incredible. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. So when you take that and then say, and Jesus is better, that's saying something. The tabernacle wasn't a refrigerator box in some alley in Los Angeles. The tabernacle was something incredible. But Jesus is better. Then uh, Exodus 24 and Exodus 40. Again, the, the two outer extremities of this chiasm that we see. <clears throat> Covenant ceremony and the Lord's presence. Uh, so we're going to end here with the climax of the book of Exodus. Well, we got through this one pretty quickly. Yay. Um, so in Exodus 24... Moses, Aaron, and the other important men of Israel, but none of those lackey, peon, insignificant people. Um, uh, Moses and Aaron and, and the elders of, of Israel confirm their covenant with God in a very elaborate ceremony, uh, and God then dwells with them. Uh, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and continues to have fellowship with God. Uh, but God, at that point in the story, isn't yet dwelling with the people. Remember when they're like, hey, hey Moses... You talk to us, but don't don't let God talk to us because, man, we're scared. So he's not yet dwelling with them um, because there's no tabernacle yet. Uh, the people uh, are not yet acceptable to a holy God. But in Exodus 40, which is the mirror to chapter 24, you know, the outer ends of uh, this chiasm, 
with Moses having already interceded for the people and God having already provided instructions concerning the tabernacle, we have this, verse 34 uh, of Exodus 40 uh, through verse 38. Then the cloud covered, excuse me, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was of the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And this is the climax of Exodus. Uh, Yahweh is dwelling with his people very much like he did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, now, it's not the full manifestation of God. It's not the ultimate personal presence of God that we had in Eden. But the, for the first time since the fall, there was true manifestation of the glory of God. And the people truly knew who God was. Uh, so the plan of redemption isn't done yet. But here by the end of Exodus, it's very much been started. The game is afoot, uh, as uh, Arthur Conan Doyle would say, well, as Sherlock Holmes would say. So um, one crucial point of application, remember that the Bible is one book. 66 different books within it, but one book. Um, the Old Testament and the T New Testament aren't two discordant books. Um, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God is like this. In the New Testament, God is like that. No, it's one book. It's the same God throughout with the same character, the same attributes. Um, they're not just tethered loosely together. Uh, they're part of one incredible story about our sovereign God who graciously saves sinners. We see that modeled in a physical sense in Exodus as he redeems them out of slavery so that they might worship him. That points us forward to when he will re again redeem his people out of spiritual slavery that we may know he is God. So Exodus should lead us, one, to despair our sin. Remember, God gave this law to make our sin obvious to us. We should despair of our sin, which should then lead us to cling to the cross of Christ, uh, full of praise, full of worship, full of adoration toward God. Uh, and you know, as this passage that we've been looking at says, uh, he filled the tabernacle. His glory filled the tabernacle as his glory fills our lives through Christ. So we should praise him for how he has shown us his glory in and through the life and death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Uh, any questions about these pretty awesome chapters from Exodus? All right. Then we will go ahead. And we will see where we end with lesson six. What what time it is. Um, so, 
Lesson six is all about Leviticus. How many guys have read through the book of Leviticus? Leviticus, yeah. <laughs> Levi, Levi Tychus? Levi I like that. I'm going to read the book of Levi Tychus. <laughs> sounds like you got to say it like that. <laughs> all right. Um, it's got not a whole lot of narrative to it. Um, so times, I mean, it's very detailed. Like I said, talking about even how to make the tassels on the garment of the priests. Um, so sometimes we're like, okay, that has nothing to do with modern life. So Levitic, Levi Tychus, Levi Tychus gets, uh, gets uh, overlooked and neglected a lot. But as we go through this, I think you're going to be truly amazed at how this book points us to Jesus. It, it truly is amazing um, as you work through uh, all these minutia uh, when it comes to the garments of the priest and you know how many buds or blossoms should be on the lampstand and all that kind of stuff. Uh, within these pages of Leviticus uh, are some of the best foreshadowings, types, uh, found in all scriptures, like the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, the great high priest, the tabernacle. We're going to see all these things in Leviticus that all are incredible foreshadows of Christ. So we've looked at the beginning of God's plan of redemption as laid out in Genesis and how he created a new people for himself in Exodus. Now Leviticus, he is going to tell, the same God is going to tell these same people how they're to live so they can fulfill his purposes in that redemption plan. So yeah. What are they doing in that room? It's just us guys. Just us guys. Uh, so uh, the context of Leviticus, it's picking up right where Exodus left off. Uh, and in fact, the entire book takes place about a month after the tabernacle has been completed. Uh, between the first month of the year and the second month of the year uh, following the exodus from Egypt. So we're still around the mid-15th century uh, BC and at the foot of Mount Sinai where God has uh, the Israelites after their escape from Egypt and where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Um, and again, it was on Mount Sinai where Moses also received the instructions for building the tabernacle and everything about that. So after they built it, we see God's glory filling it. Uh, it became the physical manifestation of his dwelling with his people. And that's where Leviticus now uh, comes into play. And so although the, the book's name, Leviticus, comes from the, the Greek Septuagint. Uh, I think you guys all know what the Septuagint is. I think, yeah, you've already gone through that. Um, the, the name means things concerning Levites, 
Uh, sounds like a J.R. Token thing, you know, where he goes, concerning hobbits. So here in the Bible, we have concerning Levites. Uh, no, okay, I'm going to focus now. Uh, its immediate purpose is to further define the relationship between God and all of Israel following this, that initial setting of terms that we, we see on Mount Sinai. And so in light of the new covenant, uh, Leviticus kind of lays the foundation for our understanding of the need for holiness, uh, the representative and exalted role of the high priest, which when we get to Hebrews, we re- that's what gives us such an incredible understanding in the book of Hebrews because of what Leviticus tells us about the high priest and so many other theological realities that we see here in Leviticus. Uh, but even in the broader context of biblical theology, uh, Leviticus is another step forward in this plan of redemption, this narrative history of redemption. Um, because up to this point, God has made good on all of his promises to, to Abraham, except for the one about the promised land. He has already given Abraham multitude of descendants. He has now formed them into a nation, yet they do not yet yet they do not yet, yet they do not have a a land of their own. Uh, And we'll be getting to that in Numbers. But before we get to Numbers, there's Leviticus. Uh, So God's having his people remain at Mount Sinai just long enough for Moses and Aaron to receive all these words uh, on holiness uh, and to make it clear to all of them that being the people of God is not a matter to be taken lightly. So the theme sentence for Leviticus could go something like this. God is holy and therefore his holy his people must be holy as well. God is holy and therefore his people must be holy as well. God is uncompromisingly holy. Therefore his people must be too. Uh, to be holy uh, means to be distinct, set apart, different. Uh, and God is holy like this. He's, he's not like anything or anyone. He is completely other than. Um, one thing that completely drives me crazy is that picture of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. Oh, that picture ticks me off. Um, people think of Satan as the opposite of God. He's not. Now, his everything he stands for is in opposition to who God is. But Satan is not the opposite of God. He has no opposites. Opposite means opposing, uh, side by side, light, dark. There, there is no opposite of God. God is unique in who he is. Everything and everyone else is below him. There is no one beside or above him. He is unique. There is none like him. He is perfect. There is no flaw in him at all. Um, he has no shortcomings in ethics, wisdom, justice, uh, you name it. He has no shortcomings. He has no flaws in it. And because he is holy, his people who are in a special covenantal relationship with him must also be holy because as his people, they're saying something about God to the rest of the world. He is to be reflected through his people to the rest of the world. And so uh, the outline, uh, there should be a 
handout that you got there. Uh, the outline allows you to see how Leviticus emphasizes uh, these themes, and it, that's the outline we're going to be using to guide our discussion here. So you may notice that the flow of the book follows a, a gospel train of thought. First, there's laws to tell the Israelites how they might approach God, but when they fail in their obedience, provision is made for them in the form of a substitutionary sacrifice. And then from that position of forgiveness and grace, the people are called to live holy lives. So for the rest of this discussion, we're just going to walk through the outline to see exactly how Leviticus puts all these things together. And so we're going to start with the offerings, then move on to the priesthood, then move on to the holy holiness code, and then we'll wrap it up with the section uh, in between chapter 16 and 17, the Day of Atonement. So we'll bypass those chapters and then go back to them at the end. So chapters 1 through 7, the offerings. Uh, these, are, these chapters are the directions about how any ordinary Israelite is to bring offerings to God. And there are essentially five main offerings. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And the burnt offering is meant as an atonement for sin. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So that he talks about placing the hand on, on the bull, and that placing the hand is just a symbolic act of transferring guilt, transferring guilt onto the sacrifice. And then the person is then killed for that person's sins. So uh, think about this. This was for just your average Israelite. Uh, think of how many bulls or sheep or goats or birds just a single Israelite might have to offer in their adult life as this burnt offering for their sin. I mean, that's mind-boggling. Uh, it, and it was all so that they would understand how seriously God takes sin. And this, this graphic thing of, of cutting the throat of this animal and draining its blood, watching it die, uh, this was to ingrain in them the seriousness of sin. Um, and so they were being constantly reminded of the seriousness of their sin as time after time, sacrifice after sacrifice, uh, their sin required the death of a living creature. And then in chapter 2, uh, he talks about grain offerings. They're offered uh, as acts of devotion or remembrance. Um, in chapter 3, he talks about peace offerings. And these emphasize the fact that all that belonged to the Israelites was really the Lord's. And then there was the sin offering. And it was meant to cover sins that were unintentional or done in ignorance. 
Uh, in other words, even if one doesn't know an action is a sin, it still is. Uh, kind of like I got a speeding ticket one time and I didn't even know I was breaking the law. You know how they have the traffic cameras? The, the speed limit had changed. I totally didn't know it. But camera, I got an envelope in the mail and had a picture of my van and said, this is how fast you're going. Please send a check. You know, I didn't get to write back. I didn't know that I was speeding. I honestly didn't know I was speeding. I didn't get to write that back. The only thing I got to write was my name on a check. Um, it didn't matter that I didn't know I broke the law. And so the sin offering was that kind of a thing saying, you know what? You sinned. You may not know it, but you sinned. So the sin offering was meant to cover those sins that were unintentional or, or done in ignorance. Uh, then you had the guilt, <coughs> excuse me, or the trespass offering, and that's in chapter 5. And it was meant to highlight the wickedness of sin and atone for it at the same time. Uh, this particular offering, the guilt or the trespass offering, was the, the offered when one became ritually, ritually unclean or sinned against his neighbor. Like, you know, if you touched a dead thing, uh, then, you know, guilt, trans, trespass offering, that kind of thing. So he lays out all these different offerings and what they're for. And then chapter 6 and 7, he lays out how these sacrifices uh, were to be made. And every detail is laid out. Uh, how much of which offering is to be sacrificed, how animals are to be slaughtered, what utensils are to be used, what utensils are not to be used. Uh, and more than just prescriptive, God intends his people, both then and now, to feel the burden caused by our sin. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just that they could choose an animal to bring. What kind of animal? How old was it? Um, what was the process of slaughtering? Where was it to be slaughtered? How was it to be slaughtered? What were you to use to slaughter it? What should you better not use to slaughter it? All of these things, the, the, the sheer weight of it all um, and the, the uncompromising exactness of it all to help the people understand this is serious and it all was a foreshadowing of how Christ was the perfect lamb slain on our behalf this wasn't a simple thing there was a lot to it that had to be known and followed exactly uh, and then chapters 8 through 10 uh, is so that's one through seven talks about how the everyday Israelite is to bring these offerings and how they should do it. And then chapters eight through ten is the establishment of the priesthood. So, having established how individuals are, are to offer sacrifices, uh, Leviticus turns to how the nation as a whole is to worship God. And so looking at chapters 8 through 10, uh, we read about Aaron's appointment as Israel's first high priest with all of his descendants set apart as priests to lead God's people in worshiping the Lord. And this is actually where Psalm 133 
uh, says, unity among the brethren is a beautiful thing. It's like oil on the beard of Aaron, on the beard of Aaron running down onto his collar. Doesn't that make you go, oh, yeah, I get it. Uh, and this is actually where that psalm is taken. Uh, what that psalm is saying, it's referring back to this whole process of when Aaron and his descendants were set apart. They were set apart for service to God. And in that um, ceremony, Aaron was anointed with oil. That anointing with oil ran down his beard onto his robes. That anointing was the symbol of him being set apart to be useful to God for service. So Psalm 133, when it says unity among the brethren is like that oil, it's saying unity among the brethren is what sets us apart to be useful to God. So again, the understanding, but if you had no, no knowledge of Leviticus in this, this process, you'd be like most people when they read Psalm 33 going, Unity is like oil on Aaron's beard? What? But then when you go to Leviticus or read this, you're like, that is an incredible picture of unity within the church. It's what sets us apart and makes us useful for service. It really, it's an incredible picture. And we get that from here in Leviticus. So uh, within these chapters here, uh, chapters 8 through 10, um, we see more regulations, more guidance on how priests are to conduct themselves and the execution of their duties. Uh, and again, the lesson is underscored time and time and time again that the sins of God's people require a great effort to be covered by a, this unending flow of sacrificial blood. And once again, Christians are reminded of how Christ perfectly fulfilled his role as our great high priest. So after Christ's sacrifice was complete, uh, as we are familiar with, the curtain in the Holy of Holies that separated God from man, it was torn into top to bottom, and God's people are now able to boldly approach the throne of grace in and through Christ. Uh, so again, knowing all of this in Leviticus gives so much significance to understanding who Christ is as our high priest and what that sacrifice was really about. And then uh, chapters 9 and 10, um, God has just given all these directions uh, that we've kind of, we haven't really talked about all the directions, but we've said, hey, there it is. There are so many regulations to this. So they've gotten all these regulations, and then Aaron has followed all the directions. And then in verse 22 of chapter 9, it says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from, the, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can you imagine being there? I mean, you, you've brought all these offerings. Moses and Aaron have come out, um, blessed the people, and then this this fire comes out of the tabernacle and consumes everything. And I, I love it, just says, 
when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Uh, it just, that would be an incredible thing to see. Because, you know, and here in Leviticus, we've had nine chapters of what to do with dead animals and oil and fat and kidneys and liver and blood and clean things, unclean things, priestly clothes, the proper ways to do it, the proper days to do it on. All this detail and exactness. And now the glory of the Lord, wham, fire out of the tabernacle, consumes it all. This would be an incredible climax to after all of this, after having to follow this burdensome, these burdensome regulations to the letter of the law, literally. And then to see it all culminate in the presence of God consuming the sacrifices, saying, these sacrifices are acceptable to me. Enjoy my presence. That would be an incredible thing to see. Uh, but Leviticus doesn't end there. Unfortunately for Nadab and Abihu, it doesn't end there. So uh, chapter, what's that? Uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, <coughs> each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. I mean, he just watched his two sons get consumed by fire. And, and <laughs> Moses doesn't say, Aaron, I'm so sorry. Those, I mean, those were, those were Moses' nephews. He says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And even Aaron held his peace. Uh, now, when it talks about offering the unauthorized fire, uh, some translations will say strange fire or profane fire. Uh, in short, it's fire. It was fire or worship that God had not commanded. Um, basically, they decided we'll worship God our way. Uh, there's a a Facebook group, I think it was Baptist, Reformed Baptist humor or something. But one of their memes, I mean, it sounded pretty arrogant, but it was true. It said, you worship God your way and I'll worship him his way. I just love that. Because, you know, in our society today, oh, I worship God my way. Yeah, so did Nadab and Abihu. Um, so uh, the way they were worshiping God they were, hey, we'll worship God our way. It was the dictates of their own heart. Uh, it wasn't according to God, how God instructed that he be worshipped. Their worship may have been well-intentioned, but good intentions aren't what matters. Um, we see that again when you know the Ark of the Covenant was put on a wagon drawn by ox. And it hit that bump or whatever and was about to tip over. And the guy, what was his name? can't remember. Yeah, he's, he's dead. It doesn't matter now. He reached out to stop it from falling, and God struck him dead for touching it. We go, but he was trying to keep it from falling. Yeah, but he was told not to touch it, and it should have never been on the cart to begin with. They sh it shouldn't have been there. So um, 
good intentions aren't what matters. It's obedience, doing things the way God says to do them. So again, what did Moses say to him? This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So Nadab and Abihu didn't regard God as holy. They didn't treat him as distinct. Rather, they disobeyed and they risked leading all of Israel into disobedience and were therefore punished. God will defend his name and guard his holiness. Any questions on that? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, we do take God too lightly. Yes. Same thing as that doesn't happen. Dude, I'd be dead, I'm sure. Uh, as a pastor, yep. I'd have a widow and a bunch of fatherless children. So. <laughs> yeah, like here. Well, thank you for that sobering thought. <laughs> Uh, so uh, now then we see chapters 11 through 15 like I said we're going to skip over 16 and 17 we'll come back to them so 11 through 15 and then 18 through 27 we have what is sometimes called or referred to as the holiness code not to be confused with the da Vinci code so because this one is real the holiness code Uh, so in these chapters, he, he presents this or incorporates this holiness code, which we'll deal, uh, again, it's two different sections, but we're going to deal with them together. Uh, and these are the chapters about which kinds of foods they can eat or can't eat or even touch, um, laws concerning ritual clean cleanliness, um, in childbirth or when someone has leprosy, uh, directions about what to do if someone has a bodily discharge. Uh, there's even uh, instructions on what to do if a bodily discharge touches a piece of pottery or wood. I mean, there's lots of regulations in here. And you go, okay, what's the significance if a bodily discharge touches a piece of wood? Well, the answer we find is in chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. And it's the first of a reoccurring statement throughout Leviticus. And God says this, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Uh, so twice here we read that the Israelites are to be holy because God is holy. Again, remember the word holy mean, meaning being set apart, being other than, being different from, um, being unique. And this teachings all over Leviticus. And we would do well, as Joshua is saying, uh, to take this seriously. Uh, don't take God lightly. Don't take this command to holiness lightly. Um, other passages, consecrate yourselves, therefore, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Uh, and so to consecrate yourself means to 
set yourself apart as different, as holy. So God is saying, set yourself apart for I am set apart. Therefore, you should be set apart. Um, in verse 26 of chapter 20, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So it's, you hear here the explicit setting apart from the other nations. I have separated you from the peoples. You are completely different than all other nations. Uh, chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Notice how that is always part of it. I am the Lord. This is about who God is. God isn't saying, you should be good because it's good to be good. He's saying, I am the Lord. This is about who I am. Not just about you. It's about who I am. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Three times in three verses. I am the Lord. Now, what does it mean to profane God's name? It means to treat something as common or ordinary, uh, something that is actually really special and treating it as if it's not special at all. So God's name is, here we see is tied to Israel. It's all about who he is and his name and how Israel reflects it. How Israel reflects it. You shall not profane my holy name, he says. Uh, they can't be a people who take this identification with God insincerely, lightly, thoughtlessly, irreverently. God is giving them these commands so that their everyday lives they will be reminded again and again and again that they are a holy nation, a people set apart for the Lord. Well, why can't I touch that piece of wood? Because you're different from other nations. Yeah, they can touch the piece of wood that got bodily discharge, but you can't. Why? Because you're different. Well, why do I have to have that blue tassel, that blue thread in my tassel? Because you're different. It's all too Keep them remembering they are completely different. Down to the smallest thing, they are completely set apart. Um, so in their everyday lives, they're going to be reminded again and again that they are a holy nation, that they are a people set apart for the Lord. They're not to live like everyone else uh, without any thought to their uniqueness in the world. Everything they did brought to their mind, we are unique, we are different. Um, he's written it into their culture that wherever they turn, whatever they do, they will be reminded of their distinct status and their call to be holy. Now, how about us today? Are we to obey all these laws? Do we need to pay attention to what we eat? Well, <laughs> yeah, to some extent, I'm sure we should pay attention to what we eat. But not because clean, unclean, sin, or do we need to pay attention to what we eat and touch and so forth in order to be holy, in order to be able to draw near to God? And 
We'll talk more about it in the next lesson, but in short, I think we all know the answer is no. Uh, we don't have to be pay attention to what we eat or touch or whatever in order to be holy. We're not the nation state of Israel under the new covenant. We're not called to be a political geographic nation distinct from other nations. Um, we are a different people to be different from the world, but we're not this political geographic nation. Uh, so these particular laws were all fulfilled in Christ in such a way that it, they no longer apply to us. However, again, we nevertheless are a special people set apart by and for God. So while we may not be a country, we are the church. And as the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, at least me, I'm a Mormon. Uh, as the church of Jesus Christ, uh, we, it is still clear that we are called to be holy. And for the same reason as Israel. Just as Israel bore the name of the one who delivered them from Egypt and from bondage, and they were to uh, display the glory and character of that God, so we today, through our lives, display and proclaim the glory and character of the one who has delivered us out of bondage to sin and death. So, no, we don't have to obey all those tiny little details of everything. But it doesn't mean that we don't display the glory of God to the world around us. Uh, so this call to be holy still remains. It's just that it manifests itself uh, in a different way in light of what Jesus has done. In Mark 7, 18 through 23, Jesus says this, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the intent was never to make some legalistic standard that, hey, if I live up to this standard by sheer force of my will, then I'm going to be just fine. But it was actually to remind the Israelites how incredibly different they were. How incredibly different they were. Um, but now that the promised Messiah has come, the principle is, saying, is the same, but the manifestation of that through our lives is different. We have things like baptism and the Lord's Supper to remind us of our uniqueness and our special obligation to uh, be ethically upright, morally upright uh, in our daily living. So as Christians, we focus on our hearts. We guard our hearts so that we can be different uh, in areas such as evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. Uh, it's, it's become a heart issue for us rather than simply an external obedience to some standard. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says it like this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Oh, where have we heard that before? Oh, Leviticus. So we see that it is still true for us today. It's just how that is lived out is different. It is still true for us today that we are to be holy for God is holy, just as it was true for the Israelites. It's just lived out differently because of who Christ is in us and through us and what he has done for us. Any questions before we wrap this up with the Day of Atonement? All right. Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Um, this was the great, this is the grace section of the outline. Uh, remember we talked about that outline, law, obedience, all of that. And this was the grace section. So in chapter 16, we find there's an annual ceremony that the Israelites were to participate in called the Day of Atonement. Now, you may be thinking, well, didn't back in the first seven chapters, didn't he talk about how the Israelites were to bring these sacrifices to atone for their sin and that they were to take place every single day? So what's the difference between them doing that and this Day of Atonement? Well... The Day of Atonement was for the entire nation to be made holy again. It was for the entire nation, not just for the individual. The Day of the Atonement was when the entire nation was brought back into reconciliation with God rather than just individuals who would bring their sacrifices. This is about the whole nation. Uh, so we've already seen that the priests made sacrifices every day for all kinds of sins, but while there was atonement, there was no reconciliation. There was no being brought back into a right relationship with God. Uh, there was no provision for the people to be reunited with the presence of God after they had sinned. And so that's where this day of atonement um, that God set up comes in. And the reconciliation is needed because of the sins of the people have made a separation between God and themselves. Uh, that's why he told Isaiah to say, Behold, O Israel, your sins have separated you from me. And that's why this day of atonement was necessary uh, because there was that separation between God and themselves. And just like with uh, the sin offering, the guilt offering, it was going to require a sacrifice who would be a substitute on behalf of the people. So this whole, again, this whole idea of a substitutionary sacrifice in order for there to be a not just forgiveness, but a reconciliation. Because you may have noticed that in some situations in your life, um, there may be people in your life who have done things. And there's a point where you guys have forgiven one another, but there's still no fellowship between you. And there may be a reason that there never can be. Um, there's still forgiveness or atonement but there's no reconciliation. So atonement and reconciliation aren't the same thing. One most definitely can lead to the other. But so we had this, the sin offering, the guilt offering, but on this day of atonement, it took it a step further to a reconciliation of the whole nation uh, back to the Lord. Um, so 
again, and this was made possible through a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, so, looking at the Day of Atonement, uh, turn to chapter 16 of Leviticus. And beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Excuse me. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So this was the most inner place uh, of the, the tabernacle, the, the holy place. It's where God's glory dwelled. And Moses said, tell Aaron that he can't just come in anytime he wants. He would die. Because just like he told Moses, if you see my glory, you're going to die because you're a sinful man. Um, that's why Isaiah, you know, Isaiah 6, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And in that Isaiah 6 passage, he says, Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord. In other words, all right, it's coming. I'm about to die. I've seen God. I'm going to die. Uh, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's going to die. Um, but God took care of him. So, but it's that same idea here. God is saying, tell Aaron, he can't just come in here. Even though he's the priest, he can't just come in here. He will die. Uh, because the glory of the Lord would crush him because of his sin. And then uh, verses 3 through 6. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place uh, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So he's telling, he's saying first, Aaron's got to make sure he's atoned for before he can do anything for the people. He has to make atonement for his own sins. Uh, he can't just come up and offer these sacrifices for the atonement of the people. He's got to take care of himself and his family first. Then uh, picking up in verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make, it, make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar from before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil. Uh, so again, actually, I'm just going to read through 14. Uh, and he shall put the incense of the, on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So again, lots of details, lots of regulation here. 
Um, so even after he has offered this bull as an atonement for himself, he still has to be very careful to do everything just right. And the smoke from the incense was meant to cover that glory of God so that even after doing all of this, Aaron wouldn't be consumed by the presence of God. So now that his own sins are covered, he can commence the role of representing the people as their priest and interceding for them. And, you know, first he takes these two goats to the entrance, one's used for a sin offering for the entire nation. Uh, and the other will serve as a scapegoat. Um, I'm sure you guys have all heard the, the phrase, oh, he's being used as a scapegoat. This is where it comes from. Uh, then uh, after Aaron is atoned for his own sins, chosen which goat will serve as an offering and which will be the scapegoat, he can make an atonement for the people. Uh, verses 15 through 19 then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So, it shows that the blood of the sin offering is for cleansing the holy place, uh, the tabernacle, the altar, um, that are all defiled because of the people's sins. Uh, and then next in verses 21 through 22, he will deal with the scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall, be, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So all of the guilt of the entire nation of Israel is laid on this goat, and then it's sent out into the wilderness. And uh, this was a, a visual, visual parable. Uh, the people would see their sins as being transferred to this goat and watch it as their sins were metaphorically taken away, never to be seen again. Once this goat led, it went into the wilderness. Their sins went with this goat into the wilderness, never to be seen again. So this whole ritual was to be performed once a year. He says in verse 29, uh, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So it was a serious and solemn day. Uh, but at the same time, it was also a joyous occasion because on this day, all of the sins of the nation were forgiven and they were reconciled to God. Um, how many guys have heard of Yom Kippur? 
this is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, it's it's still a huge Jewish uh, festival today, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Oh, you're right. I didn't even think about that. That was yeah, this week. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Anybody got to go? Uh, fresh out. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, why discuss all this in such detail? Why go through all this detail? Uh, all that to do, all that blood, tedious process, year after year after year. Sins would be forgiven, but it would have to be done again the next year. Blood's all over the place. Everyone's coming to watch. This is serious. This is serious. And it all emphasizes God's holiness. The death that must occur because holiness has not been lived up to. Um, the This is serious. And all of it emphasizes, all of this ritual emphasizes one other massive thing. It doesn't work. That's why it had to be done year after year after year after year. That all of this pomp and ritual never succeeded because the people always had to do it again. Uh, so it emphasized God's holiness and it emphasized that all that man could do was not enough. Hebrews 10, one through four says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the author, of here, the author here of Hebrews, he, he continues explaining that where the priests perform their duties endlessly, Remember, actually, every single day they were in there offering sacrifices because this problem of sin was never solved. It says when Jesus, about Jesus, that he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest never sat down. He was constantly making sacrifices. But Jesus, with his sacrifice, it was for all time one sacrifice <clears throat> And he sat down because as he said on the cross, it is finished. We are justified in his sight. So why is this the centerpiece of the book of Leviticus? Because the law was never intended to be something that would be kept perfectly by anyone except for Jesus. I mean, God never, he knew that no one would ever be able to keep it. That's one reason it was so incredibly detailed. They wouldn't even be able to remember everything in the law. He wanted to make it obvious, you will never be good enough. It was there to show our need for a savior. And the day of atonement was the clearest expression of that because it had to happen over and over and over and over. 
So the call to be holy is a serious one. And we should hear it with great solemnness. But we do it also as a people uh, who, yes, we are in need of atonement outside of ourselves, but we have Jesus to look to, to establish our standing before God. And it's only as sinners justified by God's grace that we can ever hope to live holy lives. I love what Philippians says, that it is God who works in us both to will and obey, or to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one who works in us to give us the desire and the power to be holy, to live a holy life. It's, it's not us. It is the grace of God. So with the grace that God gives, we can live distinct lives, lives of faith and obedience. And our motive is to be holy because our God who called us is holy. So two brief points of application here and we'll wrap it up. Feel the weight of sin. If there's one thing made clear with the book of Leviticus, it's that our sin has massive consequences and can only be properly dealt with through the shedding of blood. That's why the book of Leviticus really is an important and incredible book. It is what makes it clear that we absolutely need Jesus. Uh, and keep in mind as we read in Hebrews that even all of this is, is never dealt with as we read through the book of Leviticus. All the sacrifices, all the regulations, all the warnings, prohibitions, commands, singular purpose. Feel the weight of your sin. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19, 19 through 23 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. And see that imagery from Leviticus, sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice being sprinkled, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. Remember how he said the priest had to wash in water before he put on his garments, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Feel the weight of your sin. But then the second thing is look forward to the day when all sin is done and we are free to worship God in perfect holiness for all eternity. Revelation 21, one through four says this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So this is our incredible and great hope. This is what we look forward to because of Christ. Our sin was heavy and costly, but it's not forever 
if we know Christ. It will be a passing burden in this life that has been atoned for by our great high priest. Uh, there will be a day when everything is made new and we will sing the glories of our incredible God face to face with him. And that's the hope that is foreshadowed through the book of Leviticus as it looks forward to who Christ is, who he will be and what he will do. All right, any questions? No, I will say one of my favorite things in reading in the Old Testament is it refers back to Egypt all the time. And that's one of my favorite ways to understand what Christ has done because Christ has called us out of our slavery and has made it so that we can worship him. Yep. Absolutely. It's awesome reading the Old Testament and seeing how often it's littered in the Old Testament. Yeah. Christ's faithfulness. Yep. Yep. And that's why what we talked about Tuesday night, how reading the old the Old Testament gives a depth to the character of God that that isn't necessarily there in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us what God is like, and the Old Testament shows us. It shows that depth. Yeah. Yeah. All right.